From Gimlet Media, this is The Nod. I'm Eric Eddings. And I am Brittany Luce. So, Brittany, mm-hmm. you know that thing that I say all the time, that thing that's like my signature quote? Um, I don't like you. Leave me alone. <laughs> Please stop talking. You're loud. These are actually all really good guesses. <laughs> but no, it's a man's got to have a code. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard you say that before. <laughs> but I have heard that quote delivered by a one Omar Little, the stick-up man with the heart of gold from The Wire. That's true. It just maybe felt like something I would say. Okay. Maybe it's just because it's so expertly delivered by one of my favorite actors, Michael K. Williams. Mm, Michael K. Williams. Now that man, that's walking talent right there. I sound all right right here, right? Yeah, you sound great. Yeah, you sound great. You sound great. You know what I'm saying? You're professional. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? You've been, you've done this before. You see me with my Barry White voice on. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. quiet, quiet storm. <laughs> Barry White. You know so I guess we'll, we'll go ahead. Michael K. Williams, the legend, recently came into our studio to talk. He's been on some of my favorite shows and movies, like The Wire, of course, Boardwalk Empire, Happen Leonard, The Spoils Before Dying, and The Night Of. Yes, and his latest role is serving as the special correspondent of a new episode of HBO's Vice documentary series titled Raised in the System. But we'll tell you more about that later. First, we had him play one of our favorite games, which involves answering the kind of questions that only we at The Nod might think to ask. My name is Michael Kenneth Williams. Okay, that's perfect. You know, you got that one right. Okay, um, so the first question on the questionnaire is, um, could you please name a seasoning or spice that you consider to be overrated? What's that hot sauce with the little wooden top? Oh, Cholula. Oh, Cholula. Cholula overrated. Ain't nothing like Tabasco in Louisiana hot. Louisiana you like hot. Tabasco there you too? go, yo. That's C That's Overrated. Cholula overrated. Yeah. Louisiana was the only one in my house. So yeah. that, was, that was good. <laughs> Even though this has never been explicitly stated, Blank is a cartoon character that I am convinced is actually black. Donald Duck. <laughs> I actually, that one, Donald Duck reminds me, reminded me a lot of my cousin Geronimo, so I agree with that. <laughs> Blank makes the best fried chicken. Do you eat chicken? What? <laughs> I'm just saying, your skin is so nice. I'm like, you probably don't even eat fried chicken. You, you know, so, it's so funny with sickers. Right now, Buppies makes the best fried chicken. Where's Where is Buppies? In Manhattan. Word. Probably what? shouldn't. I probably shouldn't get that one up. <laughs> Buppies got some bomb fried chicken. Shout out to Buppies and Tribeca. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Name a book that changed your life. Oh, wow. Um, Conversations with God. The Four Agreements is another one. Mm, that's a good one. Alchemist is really a... You like the self-help. Yeah. Yeah, I do too, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I need a lot of help, girl. <laughs> I need all the help I can get. <laughs> we all trying to make it. Okay, this is a good one. If Prince and Michael Jackson were in an arm wrestling match, I've got my money on blank because blank. Wow. Probably Prince. He yeah. played, I mean, Prince played basketball. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, too. Prince had a mean shot. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> you got upper body strength. Yeah, was, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? 
All right. What is the worst beauty or fashion trend that you followed? In my entire life? Yes. MC Hammer, um, the the, the droop pants. Yeah. Those came back me. around, too. I was about to say. <laughs> yeah. They had I a little moment. Me, but back then, it wasn't fun. I got picked on for them bad boys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question. Mm-hmm. If I could play spades with any three figures from Black history, blank would be my partner, and we play against blank and blank. Oh, wow. Malcolm X would be my partner, and we would probably play Marcus Garvey. Mm. Fred Hampton, throw him in there. Fred Hampton, there you go. See, I was going to say, maybe Grandma, I don't know. Fred Hampton. Relatives, you know There you saying? go. But who's winning? Oh, we are. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. no. I was going to say, not to Me shade X you. got this. Yeah, I was going to say Malcolm X, Me I think. X got this. We just want to know a little bit more about you. So, where'd you grow up? And what was child Michael K. Williams like? I grew up in um in the Vanderveer Projects, which is in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York. And um I, for me, you know, I was I was um I was a corny kid. I was very awkward. I was shy in demeanor, but I was I was devilish. Mm-hmm. And uh I hung out mostly with the with the uh, with the girls honestly you know um you know anybody knows mike you know mike had, i knew the males but you know when um outside of like you know stickball or anything that involves sports mm-hmm. anything else after that I was kind of like i really <laughs> had much skills yeah. so i just uh, <laughs> you know i stayed on the stoop with the chicks <laughs> stayed in your lane basically <laughs> stayed in my lane well i know i know a lot about the devilish impulse i can imagine yeah Erica's uh, what Erica's trying to say is he was a bad kid. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's well, what I bad for bad, bad, bad sneaky. We we learn. I, I learned to do everything under the sun right under my mother's bedroom window. <laughs> like, <laughs> and then immediately I got in trouble for the same same thing. Like yeah, I did yeah, all that, yeah. and then she called my name and it was over. It was over. <laughs> it was a wrap. So I have a question about your young life, but a little bit a little bit further into the story of Michael K. Williams. So I, I read something on your Wikipedia page. And it just, it prompted me to want to know more. I'll read it it for you right quick. It says, Williams worked for a pharmaceutical company. However, inspired by Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814, he left school and quit his job against the wishes of of his family to pursue a career as a dancer. So, like, is that true? That's 100% true. I had just, you know, gotten out of a lot of trouble. And so um, getting that job... And, and enrolling myself at a business management class, that was my way of, like, you know, all right, moms, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this growing, I'm do this grow-up thing now. I didn't got it out my system. Let's, let me try to behave and, you know, get a life, you know, mm-hmm. grow up. Yeah. And that lasted all of about a year. I saw this, this Janet Jackson video, Rhythm Nation, and that just struck such a chord with me um, for a number of reasons. I mean, you got Janet Jackson, you know, Janet Jackson. Yeah. Right. Superstar. You know, what she chose to talk about was we are one world, we are all the same. We are a nation with no geographic boundaries bound together through our beliefs. We are like-minded individuals sharing a common vision, pushing toward a world rid of color lines. And then, you know, she's not selling sexuality or on the level that we were used to seeing it, seeing it at, at least. They're all in militant black. She used different types of dancers, different shades, different, you know, sizes, different, you know, d- genders. And it was a strong, just a strong message of, like, of oneness and, and togetherness. And then you look at 
Tyron Turner. He was the, um, the star of the video. You have this dark-skinned little young, I mean, this young, dark-skinned young man trapped in this, this dark, dreary warehouse yeah. mm-hmm. trying to find his way out. And, he, you know, he's, he's, he's plugging into a janitor. He can't believe that this is really happening in front of his eyes. And he looked lost in that warehouse until he listened to this song or he saw Janet performing in front of her. And for, you know, a large part on a personal level, that is much what my life felt like as a black man, you know, coming up in New York trying to find myself. Shut me up. That's yeah, deep. I was about to say, like... <laughs> Wait, so, but what did you say to your family, though? I quit. I'm going to quit school. I'm going to become a professional dancer. And I quit the job so I can go study. And how'd they, how'd they take that? Like, right. Yeah, I had to get out the house. <laughs> I had a choice. Either that was not going to fly or get out. And I was determined to to find, to at least at least give it a shot. That's so, I mean, that's that's so interesting. And also, I mean, it's also inspiring just to hear that message and, and have it inspire that change and be like, no, nah, I'm, I'm about to blow my life up a little bit. I just knew I, I just, I needed something that made me feel good about myself. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what I, you know, the, the the curriculum that was in my school systems in my community wasn't really doing that. Thank God I got introduced to the arts. Thank God I ha- I had that. Talking to him was just so much fun, and like he really shared. He did. He, he got deep. Yeah, and the conversation really got deep when we started talking about his latest project. Yes, his latest project is actually about young people, mostly black and brown kids who are caught up in the prison system. And it's actually a personal story for Michael. He grew up watching his friends, his family, and the people in his community get swept up in the system. So you just made this documentary with yes, Vice. Ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yes, that is about the uh, the juvenile incarceration system in this country. Yes, ma'am. And I'm just wondering, how did this project come about? Like, why why was this something that you really wanted to do? I came back from um, having met President Obama. It was like the, the last leg of his uh, of his administration, and you know, um, I was asked to come in and to discuss the uh, criminal justice system, and um, I just was like. What do I do with this? How, how do I make this count? What? Why is this happening in my life? And why am I even at the White House talking to freaking president? <laughs> like, how did I get here, right? Yeah. And uh, one of my mentors said, well, Michael, that's because those closer to the problem are usually the one closer to the solution. And that that blew me away. I started to examine my life. I'm like, wait a minute, Mike, you know, yeah, you've never been to prison. Yeah, you've never done hard time. But you have been visiting friends and family and supporting people throughout their bids in the in the system since I was 17 years old. And I've been, I guess for lack of better words, blessed to see the journey of how my friends and family made their mistakes and where they went wrong. I looked at my cousin, Niven Taylor. I looked at my nephew, Dominic DuPont. I looked at my friend and coworker, Felicia Snoop Pearson. I was like, okay, there's there's something to be said here. And I, I took my my friends and family's stories to the producers, just wanting to, to tell their stories of where they went wrong and their redemption. And I learned so much that I didn't know about. For one, this thing we call the school to prison pipeline. You know, that thing exists. And these kids are being criminalized and being warehoused in these private prisons that exist around our nation. So it's it's almost, it's it's we're creating professional inmates. Mm. And we're getting them young and primarily from 
poor communities of, of, of different variations of brown people. My first time being incarcerated, I was about 14. I've been in and out of since then. When I was 16, they tried me as an adult. Growing up in my household was different. Sometimes no light, no water, no food. So I turned to the streets for real. And the streets got me, but now they don't got me no more. How long are you going to be in DLC for? I had 33 years total. You had 33 years? Yeah. You didn't have the exact same experience as the kids that you spoke with, but you had some similar uh, sort of parallel experiences around addiction. Could you talk to us about some of those parallels between your life and your experiences and the kids that you spoke with? You know, um, a lot of it, it just I think it just stems from lack of self-esteem, a uh, huge need to be accepted. And for me... Um, I was no different. I wanted to fit in. I had a huge need to be accepted in a community that um, had a lot of anger hmm. in it, and a lot of self-hatred. For me, that turned inward. I impaled on my on my self-hatred. I didn't. I wouldn't hurt you, but I I had a low self-esteem, and um, I just wanted to be, you know, wanted to be liked. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted, you know, and. Um, it wasn't when I realized that the first person I needed to be accepted by and fit in with was the person I was looking at in the mirror. That's when I started to work to chip away at a lot of those, um, you know, just as we say in the in the program, stinking thinking. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> that experience of, of not having high self-esteem, wanting to fit in, like that's a normal adolescent thing. That's, that's something that everybody goes through, but the the circumstances, you know, that a lot of these young people are experiencing in are different. And so it has like those different consequences. Absolutely. In the late 80s, early 90s, you know, crack and had really infested our community. And so a lot of kids didn't have what were lacking home life and were falling prey to the streets. That builds trauma, right? Yeah. You mix that trauma with with normal adolescent behavior with peer pressure, all the things that all of us have been a part of because we're human, yeah. it's compounded, right? You can damn well believe that young person is going to do something stupid and most likely violent. They're angry mm-hmm. and they're in pain, yeah. right? So, so yeah, we have to still pay for, for our mistakes and for our bad choices. But what's what the problem is, we cannot put these kids in an environment that is not conducive to the fact that they're still kids. We probably got some of our future leaders mm-hmm. in there, some future Dr. Kings or some future Oprahs in there. You know, you know, we just don't know. Yeah, so right? much potential. So much potential. We're locking up our kids at an alarming rate. So who the hell knows who we have in there? The only way to, to deal with these young people is to make them make them accountable for their mistakes. But it cannot be these gray. Um, buildings with steel toilets and no classrooms and no programs in there to help them to cope with the fact that they are still children who made very bad choices. What did you find out when making this documentary about like how teenagers' brains develop and how that can sort of affect like you know this whole line of criminality? That's a very good question. Um, and um, I am. I'm not a doctor, so I'm going to try my best yeah, to keep it you simple. You did talk to a doctor in the doctor. Yes, ma'am. You did talk to a doctor. <laughs> he was way more elegant explaining, but I'm going to do my best. Um, so there's a part of the brain, it's called the frontal lobe. Our rational thinking, our logical thinking comes from this part of the brain. And 
that part of the brain is one of the last parts to develop, which is why when you have your first car and you want to insure your car, if you're under 25, who in here has had, had to go to insure their car 25 and younger? Yeah, me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, may I ask another question? Is everybody here over twenty-five at least? Yeah. <laughs> did you notice? A, did you notice an intense drop in yeah. your insurance once you cross twenty-five? Lord you knows. know why? The insurance company—that's the insurance company's way of telling you—they anticipate that from the time you're able to legally drive till you're twenty-five years old, you're going to do some dumb shit behind the wheel. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they expect you to make mistakes. Bingo. What can everyone do? Like, how do we act on this information that you're giving us? Mentorship. I think mentorship is, you know, is a, is a very underused word in our community. We need to go back to the concept of it takes a village to raise a child. Hmm. I don't think that we need to wait for Congress or wait for anybody else to tell us that it is okay to start saving our children off these streets and start loving on them and start letting them know that they matter. I don't think that we we need to, we need permission to do that. At one point, like in the piece, you actually you you know you had a really emotional moment. You kind of broke down when talking to this this, uh, this one uh, boy in an elementary school. That moment was a basically out of body experience. I'm sitting here, I'm talking to an 11 year old boy, dark skinned boy, with a scar on his face, named Michael. Uh, I was abused by my father, and my mother passed away. My whole family just runs around the place. I don't know why. I want to be the first one to grow up and not go to prison. Telling me about how much pain he's in and that he wants to use his pain to be a blessing in somebody else's life. That, I, I can't tell you what that, what that did to me and uh, for me. It's very surreal. Yeah. It's inspiring too, you know. For, I mean, one of the things you said in the in, in the doc was just like for him to be able to do that at that age, to be able to understand and want and want to make that transition at that age is is really remarkable. It kind of makes me think about the thing that you said about future leaders. Like that's an unusual mindset for a young person to have. Oh, he's one to watch. There's a lot of little leaders in that that uh this doc. You know, I got to meet some really beautiful people, very strong people, very inspiring people, and. You guys get to watch because we were rolling cameras. That's that's all. That's all we did was roll the camera. And so, and, and when can folks watch? Like, what, like you can watch Raised in the System only on HBO. That came just out like, real smooth. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, just like the commercial. <laughs> I've been there for sixteen years. I, I, at least I can know how to say that. Right? <laughs> only on HBO. <laughs> oh. that, that was good. That was perfect. Right on key. Thank you so much. Seriously, you, this, has been, this has been a pleasure. This is like a dream country. Thank you so much. Appreciate the love. Y'all yeah. stay up, bro. Keep doing great work. Thank you, brother. You too, man. After the break, I am going to share how I managed to stay so soft in such a harsh, harsh world. And now, it's time to get your life together. You. Yes, you. This is Get Your Life with Brittany Luce.
Okay, so the thing I want to talk about today is self-worth. Okay, so like self-worth is kind of like, it's like it's like this vague term. It gets thrown around a lot. But only recently did I realize that knowing your self-worth can have actually a lot deeper of an effect on the way you experience life than I had like previously assumed. You might be wondering, what is self-worth? How do you get it? So let's chat. Despite the fact that I do not even consider attending church on a regular basis, I was raised in the church. So something that people say, something you hear a lot when you're raised Christian, is that you're a child of God, child of God, child of God. I could never make sense of what that meant. Recently, I had an experience uh, with another person that, that, that caused that phrase to come back to me. And I'm going to explain a little bit about that. So I had an experience a few months ago where somebody that I know was just really mean to me for no reason, out of nowhere. And it, I don't know if it was the day, I don't know if it was just like uh, like the fact that I kind of thought that I was acting out of good intentions and that like I was concerned that we had had a major misunderstanding or what, but like I was really, really hurt by the interaction that we had. I was really, really, really hurt. Before I went to sleep that night, I shed a couple tears. And, um, like, you know, it's hard to go to bed on a heavy heart if, if I'm being honest with y'all. You know what I'm saying? Like, this situation had me questioning my own character. Like, I was wondering if there was something wrong with me. You know, I began to internalize this person's meanness as, like, a behavior that I deserved. But then... I had a moment, like I was laying in bed thinking about this, I couldn't sleep. And I had this realization that was so like, it was like a pinprick, it happened so fast. I rolled over, my phone is not, it's never far from me when I'm sleeping. So I rolled over like two inches, I grabbed my phone and I pulled out my iPhone notes. And I was like, I need to write this shit down. Um, you know, not necessarily so I can share it with y'all, okay? So this is not like Oprah Super Soul Sunday level shit, but it's how I was feeling in the moment. Here it goes. I had a moment just now where I kind of broke down into tears. I was hurt, but then I remembered who I am. And I feel like I now know what that means. Sometimes people walk with pride because they know that they are a quote-unquote child of God. I didn't get it before, but what they're saying is that they know that they have worth just because they are. And they are loved and supported by the universe or God or Allah or whoever. And... I was able to recover from this person's meanness because I know my worth. I am understanding that my value comes from how I treat others, what I create, how I love, and what I have survived. I know that sounds corny. Their behavior was about them, not me or anything that I did. And I know that's true because I have been snippy before with people and it always came from my bullshit and not the other person. I'm also starting to understand the meaning of, quote unquote, praying for someone, even though I don't really pray. Pain makes you do crazy things. It takes a lot of pain to be so mean. And personally, I would know. I hope that this person's pain lets up on them a little so they can feel what I was able to feel right now, which is my own inherent worth. Life is harsh. You have to fight to stay soft. Keep fighting.
after typing this out, I remember feeling such a deep sense of gratitude and just lightness. I'm giving this person's emotions too much power and too much credit in my own life. For the first time, I really understand, actually, the concept of what it means to be a quote-unquote child of God or, or, or what it means to have self-worth. Self-worth isn't really necessarily about some sort of material or physical value. And it's also not something that you have that nobody else does. Self-worth is really just like your own understanding that you have value and your own understanding that you deserve to be here and that you deserve respect and that like you get to decide who you are. And that's where I went wrong in this whole interaction. Like I let this person's bullshit determine how I was going to feel about myself. So that's it. Self-worth is intrinsic. You have worth simply because you're alive. This has been another edition of Get Your Life with Brittany Luce. Don't make her have to say it again. The Knot is produced by me, Brittany Luce, with Eric Eddings, Kate Parkinson Morgan, and Emmanuel Berry, with production assistance from Wallace Mack. Our senior producer is Sara Abdurrahman. We are edited by Annie Rose Strasser. Fact-checking by Max Gibson. Engineering from Cedric Wilson. Our theme music is by Khalid B. Additional music in the show by Cedric Wilson and Oat Mello. Voice acting by Brandon Elsie. Can't get enough of The Nod? I know I can't. Hang out with us on Twitter. You can follow us at The Nod Show to get bonus content, memes, articles, and so much GIF action. Don't miss it. Can't get enough of The Nod? I know I can't. <laughs> Hang out with us on Twitter. <laughs>